Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for that generous ripple of applause as I came out. It was really kind. Um, so I am Dan. I am finishing off our three-part series on Advent, which we've called Living and Waiting, and um, Adam has done the entire series so far. Uh, We looked at Isaiah and the people of God waiting for their promised Messiah, and then um, we looked at the Gospels, where Jesus had come. It's a little bit echoey. I don't know if this is too close to me. I just need to turn it down. Um, where Jesus had come, but they were waiting for Jesus' victory, and the people of God were still living in waiting, even once Jesus had arrived. And then Jesus' victory came and went, and um, maybe if I move back, and Adam was explaining to us about um, the kingdom of now and not yet, which Jesus' victory had been accomplished, and yet there was still some victory still to come, some completion to that. Um, And so today we're going to look at a passage in Revelation and the part of history we're in now, which is the end times, really. Everything which has been since Jesus until Jesus comes again and how we are waiting and living in waiting now. So the kingdom which was described as now and not yet. Still quite echoey. Now and not yet. Um, what, which kingdom is that that is now and not yet? The Bible calls it a few different things. It might call it the kingdom of God. It might call it the kingdom of heaven. And um, just wanted to explore a little bit the idea of heaven. What or where is heaven. Still quite booming. That's probably me. Um, So in our current culture, heaven is most commonly talked about as the place where we all go when we die, right? That's what most people think of when we talk about heaven, but that's not the main way that the Bible talks about heaven. So We've got a couple of verses from Genesis which will help us um, just pinpoint exactly where we go wrong. Um, so Genesis 1.1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1.8, quite soon later, says God created this vault, this expanse, and he separated the waters above and the waters below. And the vault he called sky, or your translation might say The vault he called heaven, with a capital H. And guess what? In the Hebrew, the word in verse 1, heavens, is the same as the word in verse 8. God created the heavens. It's a plural word, so heavens is quite a good translation. And I keep creeping forward, don't I? Maybe that's... Back off. Um, And heavens is confusing because it has this kind of dual meaning of the space above earth but also the space where God is and so um, just want to try and unpack that a little bit 
if God created the heavens and the earth, there was this kind of physical reality of the biblical imagination, which was there's the earth here and the sky and then the waters below. They had this concept that the earth kind of floated on the waters and there were the pillars. If you read some of the, the Psalms, it talks about the pillars of the earth that the, hold the earth above the water. It's kind of how they pictured the physical world, these three places, sea, earth, and sky. And then they used that language and that concept as a mirror of the spiritual world, where the sea below was a way of thinking about where death was, where we, yeah, this, this is the realm of death. Earth is the realm of where humans live, and sky is a way of thinking about where God lives. They didn't have this, sometimes we get this chronological snobbery of, they were so primitive, they thought that God lived on a cloud up there. That wasn't what they thought. It was just a way of using the physical world to create this kind of concept of the spiritual world. And we see this um, in Genesis 3, 8. I think that's on a slide as well. It talks about God walked in the garden. So heaven is, is really a way of talking about just God's space. It's where God dwells. It's where his presence is completely manifest. As if God is just walking about in that space, as, as plain as I am standing here walking about in this space. That's where heaven is. That's where God is. And the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, is pictured as this space where earth and heaven overlap. So man can live there, and God can live there, and they can both exist together. So in the beginning, heaven and earth overlapped. And although it never says that the Garden of Eden was on a mountaintop, I think that's really implied in the text, because you have these four great rivers it talks about in Genesis 2, I think. And from those four rivers, they go to the ends of the known world at that point. And there's no geographical location where those four rivers meet. But if these are all the greatest rivers known to this population of people, and they all have their source in one place, then knowing anything about geography, I didn't do geography GCSE, but I'm pretty sure the source of a river has to be in a high place. And the source of all the greatest rivers has to be in the highest place. And so I've got a picture which is not where I think Eden is. <laughs> this is. This is in Spain somewhere. But gives you maybe a concept of the, the Garden of Eden that the biblical authors were trying to conjure up for their people. So it's on a mountaintop. It's where the rivers start. It's where the earth meets the sky and creates this image of where earth and, and heaven overlap. And I'm using the word sky and heaven, but remember, they're the same word in Hebrew. So, God walked among people. His dwelling place was with people in the beginning. And then, as we know, uh, man sinned, and the consequences of sin were 
enmity between people, misplaced desire comes into the world, pain, sorrow, toil, death, and separation. So heaven and earth were ripped apart in that moment. There was no longer any overlap between those two spaces. And you can follow this theme through the Bible as the tabernacle becomes a place where earth and heaven meet in this tiny space, which then you can follow it through and the temple becomes that space and there's this whole animal sacrifice which enables it to happen. And then Jesus comes and it talks about Jesus being the tabernacle, him himself in a person being the overlap of heaven and earth. And we even sang about it today, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. Jesus was heaven and earth overlapping in a person. And when we follow that theme all the way to the end of the Bible, we come to Revelation 21, which is our main passage for today. I can't read it there, so I'll turn around and read Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, God is making everything new. He is not throwing away the old and bringing in something new. This is talking about reversing the process of decay, undoing the consequences of sin. Remember that list of things that I said that, that sin brought into the world when man first sinned? It's basically the list of things that has now been undone. There's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more toil, no more pain. God is not in the business of throwing away and starting again. He is in the business of restoring and renewing and redeeming. Renewal is actually a word that I use in my everyday life. I'm a software engineer by trade, and uh, I work in the insurance industry. Um, It's great to have Mike with us this morning. Mike got me the job, works also for the same insurance company. So I'm sure you come across renewals all the time as well, Mike. Um, And renewal, uh, we we have to renew policies all the time, obviously. And um, sometimes our customers say to us, well, if we've got a change to make, can we renew it and just sort of edit the policy? And sometimes you can. So if they've told you the house is worth a million pounds and it turns out it's only worth half a million, you say, yeah, just, just change it on the form. We'll reduce the price. It's fine. But sometimes you can't renew a policy. You have to say, if they've told you it's made out of brick and it turns out it's made of wood, then you get, no, no, we'll, we'll cancel that policy. We'll start again. We call it a cancel rewrite. 
And so this is my everyday language at work. And I thought it was just a helpful way of understanding the difference between what God is doing, renewing the world, versus a cancel and rewrite. He's not going to get rid of it and say, yeah, that one actually doesn't really work. We'll start again. There is um, hopefully a diagram of heaven and earth. Yeah, here we go. So this is a very basic diagram of the trajectory of heaven and earth throughout history. They met in the beginning. They were separated and were becoming more and more separated. Jesus came and the process of that separation was reversed. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, it is coming near again. And one day they'll be reunited again in the end. I had to use my um, paint skills to come up with an alternative diagram, which is maybe the cancel rewrite version of that, <laughs> which is where Jesus comes, but things just keep getting worse. And in the end, it just kind of blows up. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth. We'll, we'll try that one instead. This is not how God operates. Um, he is in the business of sticking with his plan A. Go back to the other diagram then for us. Thank you. Um, so, as with pretty much everything with, with Jesus and with God, it's in equal measure completely surprising and completely shocking, but also really obvious, because actually when you look back, you go, oh, it's always been this way. The command from the very beginning was to be fruitful and multiply. Then to Abraham, it was... I'm going to bless you so you can bless the world. To the nation of Israel, I'm going to bless you as a nation so you can bless all nations. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. So the plan has always been that God is going to renew the world, reunite heaven and earth through his people. That is how God is making all things new. And the, the beautiful news is that this is not an effort of his people, not through the effort of, of his church, because we know that we're not very good at those things by ourselves, but empowered by his spirit to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That is how we're going to produce the fruit of the kingdom, which is bringing his kingdom nearer all the time. And what is the fruit of the kingdom? Um, well, last week, many of you shouted those things out at Adam, so you know already. But if I had to choose three that could potentially summarize, um, I might choose joy and peace and righteousness as key fruits of God's kingdom. And these are the fruits that God has demanded and invited and given as a gift of grace since the very beginning. Those commands to be fruitful. Those commands to be blessed and bless. Those commands to make disciples. They're all about producing those fruits. Joy, peace, and righteousness. It's totally surprising what God's doing, but it's always been that way. If you need any more evidence that, um, that this has always been God's plan A, that the world didn't go wrong and now God's having to fix it, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. 
And you can see that through the number 12, which when God created the nation of Israel, there were 12 sons which became 12 tribes. Jesus then kind of echoed this as he commissioned his 12 disciples. And then throughout Revelation, you see the language of the number 144,000, which is 10 times 12 times 10 times 12 times 10. It talks about the holy city, describing it with 12 gates, a city with 12 foundations, each gate made of 12 pearls, the 12 jewels. It talks about a tree with 12 fruits that produces it in the 12 months. This is just another sign that the biblical authors just see this all as one big continuous picture that God has been working through from the start. So what does this mean for us as God's people? It means that there is work to be done. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work. And when Jesus comes again and heaven and earth are reunited, there will still be work to be done. Which means that if there was work to be done at that end and that end of the diagram, then surely there's work to be done all the way through as well. The reunion of heaven and earth will not be an eternal worship service where we just go like this the whole time. I would get bored. As great as worship is, I would get bored. It's also not a retirement like someone who's been an entrepreneur, made millions by the age of 35, retired, and now just goes on holidays for the rest of their life all over the world, sits on the beach, sipping cocktails. That is not what heaven be like when heaven and earth are reunited. If we are restored to being fully God's image, as Adam was, then the work of God is our work as well. It's not work that we have to do to earn an income to survive. That's good news. It's also no longer the work to subdue the earth and bring order to a world of chaos, because God's kingdom will have fully come. There'll be no more chaos. It says the sea has gone. The sea is that realm of death, remember? So what is God's work for us when the kingdom has already been fully established? I think that the work of God is the work of creation. And so we can give ourselves fully in that, in that time, we'll be able to give ourselves fully to creating, to just making beauty. That is, that's going to be all we have to do, to make beautiful things. The fruit of the kingdom, which I said, joy, peace, righteousness. There will still be fruit that we get to produce, and there will be completely unopposed. There will be no opposition to us making great choices, to us loving one another, to just, yeah, unopposed joy. So how then should we live in waiting? Joe, do you want to come back up? We're going to sing quite soon. By doing kingdom work now, which is producing the fruit of joy and peace and righteousness, we are pulling the kingdom of heaven into earth. That is an invitation 
as well as a command, as well as a gift of grace which God gives us. We pray for the kingdom to come fairly frequently. Every time we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will break into this world. And it's no accident that it's paired with thy will be done. By doing the will of God, we are literally pulling the kingdom of heaven down, drawing that, that time when, when Jesus will come again even closer. And there's no kind of cosmic bank balance of, well, every time I give money to the poor, the kingdom of God is, comes an hour closer. Every time I swear, it gets a minute further away. That's, that's, not, that's not how it works. But there are kind of scales of justice and righteousness that are you know, currently tipped one way. And when the kingdom comes, we'll see it entirely tipped the other way. And if we can tip those balances, I believe we are bringing the kingdom of God closer and nearer. So God tells us to pray for it, and we can do it in how we live out as well. Just one final verse to finish with. This is not quite the last verse in the Bible, but the one before it. And this is John's response when he's finished telling us all about the things that he saw in the book of Revelation. It says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And then John just says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. That's all he could think of to say. Yes, let it be. Come. We're going to sing about what it's going to be like in heaven now. I just want to really enjoy that, that concept of, yes, let it be now. Can we draw the kingdom of heaven into earth through how we live? It's a command and an invitation and a gift all at once. Um, yeah, so why don't you stand to your, stand to your feet? Let's sing together.